0: Well, good morning. It's so good to be together. We're going to study God's Word. Let me invite you to open up to the New Testament book of James for just a moment. We'll come back to Proverbs, but we're going to begin in James. What we're going to see, I think, right here as we begin in James is, is James highlights that there's a temptation to use our words in ways that are not life-giving, to do the opposite. And so here's what, here's what James says, chapter 3. James chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 2 where he says, "We, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies and consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided By a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how small a fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue A world of unrighteousness is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, with the tongue. We bless our Lord and Father. He's talking to Christians. We, believers, we bless the Lord, our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Verse 10, blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? There's the challenge of the tongue. Can our tongues be reined in? Can they they be mastered by our Lord and pressed into the service of the upbuilding of our brothers and sisters rather than their destruction? Can they be something other than fire starters? One of the most famous exchanges perhaps of all time took place in the Upper West Side of New York City in 1998. It was an exchange of direct email messages between one Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly, played alternately by Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in the movie, You've Got Mail, yes. Here's how it goes. Joe Fox, he's writing, typing this out. Do you ever feel you've become the worst version of yourself, that a Pandora's box of all the secret hateful parts, your arrogance, your spite, your condescension, has sprung open Someone upsets you, and instead of smiling and moving on, you zing them. Hello, it's Mr. Nasty. I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. And here's her response. She's typing. No, I know what you mean, and I'm completely jealous. What happens to me when I'm provoked is that I get tongue-tied, and my mind goes blank. Then I spend all night tossing and turning trying to figure out what I should have said. What I should have said, for example, to... That bottom dweller who recently belittled my existence. And she stops and tries to think what she should have said. Nothing. Even now, she writes, days later, I can't figure it out. And Joe Fox responds, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could pass all my zingers to you? And then I would never behave badly, and you could behave badly all the time, and we'd both be happy. But then, on the other hand, I must warn you, that when you finally have the pleasure of saying the thing you mean to say at the moment you mean to say it, remorse inevitably follows. And that becomes, if you've ever seen the movie, spoiler alert, that becomes kind of predictive of what happens in the movie as it unfolds, and she ends up in that moment looking her enemy in the eye, and all the zingers just, just line up, and they just come marching out, in line, everything she wanted to say with all the heat and fury that she could muster. And she the last words were she said, You're nothing but a suit. And he just stood there, w- sat there withering under her words, and, and it became almost prophetic. She she felt this intense remorse. It wasn't satisfying. There was remorse. Um, you ever hate the words that you speak? You ever, you ever wish you could reel them back in, but, but they're already out, and there's no way. They've already been set. The bomb has already gone off, and it's there in the room, and it's done its damage. That's why James says the tongue is a restless evil. It's, it's like it's set on fire by hell itself. It's like a fire, like a forest fire. He uses that metaphor, and the forest fire just doesn't stop until it has no more fuel. That is, until everything is burned. In all directions, everything is charred and scorched earth. And he says that's what the tongue is like. It, it doesn't stop until it's scorched everything. God has an agenda for your mouth. He has an agenda for your words. God wants to use your mouth, my mouth, to be an instrument of healing, not disaster, not Destruction. He wants to use our words to put hope into people, to put courage into people, words that the Spirit is going to use to lift burdens off of people, to lift shame off of people, to draw them to the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope that's found in Him alone. Proverbs twelve eighteen. I love the second part of that because it gives us a clear, positive agenda for our words. If that's the one on the front of your worship guide. Here's those, the second half, it's just simply this, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Can we say that together? The tongue of the wise brings healing. If we want our words to bring healing, at least three things are necessary. Number one, recognize the power of words. Recognize the power of words. Our speech has great power. If we don't recognize this, we're gonna do a lot of damage. We might have said on the playground when we were kids, I don't know how long it's been said, it could go back to biblical times, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And the interesting thing is sometimes you might have seen people, or maybe you yourself, said that through tears, you were falling apart saying, that doesn't hurt at all, right? We knew we were lying. We knew the the marks that are left by the sticks will go away, in many cases, faster than the ones that are left by painful words that stick with us for, for a long, long time. Proverbs, this is in your notes just as a point of information, Proverbs talks more about how we talk than any other theme. I'll confess to you, when I was crafting this series, and oftentimes if you're preaching through Proverbs, you preach through the themes that Proverbs brings up. You don't preach necessarily expositionally in and, and one chapter at a time, because by the time you get to chapter 10, chapter 10 is going to go all over the place. Every verse stands alone, is not necessarily related to the one that comes before it. So you just pick these themes, and you're studying the whole book. Well, I wasn't even going to, in the, at the outset, even include a message on words. And then I did a thing. Here's what I did was I read through the whole book of Proverbs in one sitting. And by the time I was done, I thought, how can we not talk about words? It's, it's gotta be addressed more than any other theme in this entire book. And I went and researched it and found out that that is exactly the case. Something like 90 proverbial sayings just counseling us in how to speak. Proverbs has more to say about our words than money, then sex, then family. It, it doesn't put all of its teaching, again, in one passage. but it, So we're going to look at several passages. We're going to have them up on the screen so you don't have to constantly flip back and forth. But, but here's the question. Why are words so important? And the answer comes from a proverb. Proverbs 18:21 begins with this, these words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. How sobering is that? Why are words so important? They're important because it's life and death. What we say can absolutely crush, or what we say can cause people in the grace of God to thrive, to grow. Words, as it says in your notes, words have the power to create and to destroy. We can destroy things with our words. God created the beauty of this world with words, and we in this in the fall we can destroy worlds with our words. Destroy people's worlds, destroy people's lives. Proverbs 11:9 says this, with his mouth the ungodly destroys his neighbor with his mouth. Not his fists, his mouth decimates his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous are rescued. Uh, A news story came out several years ago. Um, Thankfully, let me just say so that nobody's really shocked or, or worried, no one was hurt in this incident, but a Pennsylvania, this is how it read, a Pennsylvania history buff who recreates firearms from old wars, accidentally fired a two-pound cannonball through the wall of his neighbor's home in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> William Mazur, he writes, age 54, fired a cannonball Wednesday evening outside his home in Georgia's township that ricocheted and hit a house 400 yards away. He was charged with reckless endangerment, criminal mischief, and disorderly conduct he told wpXI TV that recreating nineteenth century cannons is a long time hobby. He said he is sorry, and he will stop shooting them on his property right you think <laughs> right. i mean if if cannons are your plaything you got to be extra careful right if that 's your toy if that 's your hobby, you have to be more careful than than the next person. Why does scripture do you think admonish us to? To be quick to listen, but slow to speak. Because what is so often our natural inclination? To flip those precisely, to be quick to speak and slow to listen. And the Proverbs talk a lot about hasty speech, impulsive you didn't think it through, it just comes flying out, there's no filter, and it, it's, it just goes in all directions and creates havoc. Hasty speech in Proverbs, mark it, we're not gonna read all those Proverbs, but hasty speech in Proverbs is the opposite, is the enemy of life-giving speech. Here's one example, it's the one on the cover of your worship guide, Proverbs 12:18. There is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword. Or here's the ESV translation of that verse. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You ever ever thrust some swords with impulsive, hasty words? You ever felt the sword thrust of impulsive, hasty, biting words? We're going to talk about healthy family two Sundays from now from the book of Proverbs. I I thank God, I hear so many horrific stories, I thank God I grew up in a home where my parents loved each other, spoke well to each other um, and, and cared for us and they didn't, they weren't perfect by any means, they made mistakes, they got angry, yes, but they never destroyed us, they never demeaned or belittled us. They never intimidated or stood over us in that kind of way. Some some of you even here this morning, you need a faith community that feels like an environment of grace and, and a place where you can heal and you can be nourished in the good news of the gospel and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And you need it keenly because you felt the sword thrusts. Probably many in this church, I think we'd be naive to assume that there aren't some in this church who have heard the kinds of words from people who matter, people who are supposed to say only things that build up and encourage and are constructive, but instead you've heard words that would take one's breath away. So calculated to destroy, calculated to inflict maximum damage. You've heard those words, you can't unhear them, they're still ringing in your ears. Let me just say to you, let us just pause for just a moment, if you've heard words like that, if you're hearing words like that, can I just say to you, that's not okay. That's not okay, that's not right. You don't deserve that, that's not your fault to be on the receiving end of that. God. God wants to speak words to you that over time put you back together in Christ, and it's going to take time, but He wants to put, He wants to mend broken places where sword thrusts went in, He wants His Word to work right there in that spot, put you back together in Christ. Can I just say, verbal abuse must be intolerable in the church. Emotional abuse, intolerable in the church. Words mark lives. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. I spoke to an older lady many years ago, and she quoted some painful words, and she was in tears. And I said, how long ago was that said to you? And without hesitation, she said, 50 years. A direct quote from 50 years earlier. Earlier. Our words do great damage. But on the other hand, words have the power to sustain. They have the power to mend and to heal and to transform and to create things. And that's what's supposed to happen here. In the church, our speech should sound like a foreign accent in this world. You read Romans chapter 12. We studied it a couple years ago. I just love the way that you pick up on the language of God's people in the household of faith. It's totally different. In here, we outdo one another in showing honor, love one another sincerely in the church. Paul Paul talked about speech in the church in 1 Corinthians, and he said in that context, let everything be done for building up. You're together. Every word that's spoken should be building people up, should be making people stronger in their faith. What if we took that as an order from God? It is an order from God. In the church, let everything be done for building up. He's saying, say nothing to anyone except with the intention that they'll be stronger after you've said it stronger in Christ, stronger in faith. He talks about, in Ephesians 4, he talks about words that fit the occasion. What's the occasion? To give grace to the hearer. That's a new kind of language. If our church is marked by that kind of language, we won't have space for all the broken people who come to hear the sound of people who love each other and have hope in Christ. You ever had someone say something to you that put something into you, something strong that stood you up in a storm. You ever had that happen before? Many years ago, I was driving to the house of a, a church member. Their college-age son, it was an emergency call from the mom. college aid son, I was the college pastor, was in a fit of rage and he was making threats. He hadn't done anything. They didn't think that he was going to do anything, but he was out of control. And so all the pastors are driving toward their house. It's midnight, and I call my mom on the way, and I didn't tell her any names, but I said, Pray. We, we don't know what we're walking into. Um, this family's been under attack, and I, I have no idea what's going to happen when we get there. And as I'm speeding down the highway, my mom is just speaking encouragement, is just putting steel in my spine. You go, son, go in the authority of Christ. Go with his word. Go with his spirit. I'm just speeding down the highway, hearing these words that are putting something in me that wasn't there before. That's grace. That's powerful. That's the church. That's the church. That's what you're called to. In small ways and in big ways, you're called to do that this week to speak life. What a privilege that is. Don't underestimate the privilege of speaking life-giving words, standing someone up in a storm through the words that you have spoken. Church, recognize the power of words. Just to repeat it, Proverbs twelve eighteen: there is one who speaks rashly and it's like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Recognize the power of words. Number two, Learn the art of restraint, learn the art of restraint. There was a show some years back uh, called What Not to Wear, Uh, and I have to admit that I watched it a few times uh, that some will want to revoke my man card, but I did watch the show on occasion, and (laughs) so here's the basic idea, if you haven't seen the show, they, they'd turn in a friend of theirs, it was kind of an intervention style thing, you know, there's, there's a friend who had just given up the fight in their eyes, right, just not even trying, you know, wearing jogging pants with holes in them at, to Walmart, and they'd capture them on a hidden ke- uh, video camera, and they'd show it to these fashion designers, and the fashion designers and the close friends would just look at it and say, oh, there's no way, how, what, what was he thinking, what is she thinking, we have to help this person, and so then they would would bring the person in, show them the videos, <laughs> have a kind of a speak the truth in love moment with them, and then they would go to the closet, and they'd say, that goes, that goes, that goes, and they'd just empty out the closet. And you could even see the person uh, arguing, like, I got that shirt at a ZZ Top concert in 1982. I, there's, it just has such meaning. It's like, you can't wear that thing. There's just, that's not happening anymore. Um, It was a a low point in your life, but that's not going to happen anymore, right? Idea being, before they could put new clothes on this person, they had to teach them what not to wear, what to get rid of. Well, so many of the Proverbs, this is in your notes, are telling us what not to say. (laughs) Not just positively what to start saying positively, but but what to stop saying. And first of all, we'll go through a, a number of these. Sometimes the answer is to not say anything at all. There are certain contexts in which the proverbs would have us simply be quiet. <laughs> Here's one. Proverbs 17:28, classic. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent we have a phrase that now has a lot of momentum in our house, and I've given it momentum through my own dumb things that I say without thinking first. And the statement is just two words, process internally. So one of us will just say some nonsensical dumb thing and And the rest of us will say, okay, process internally, right? And very often, I am the one who hears the words, (laughs) the playful words, dad, process internally, right? Uh, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. You ever done that, right? You're ever at a table and you're just outsmarted by everyone there and you're thinking, if I can just hold on, if I can just not say anything dumb... If I can just nod at the right times, I'm going to survive. I'm going to, I'm going to make it through this. That's my goal, nod at the right moments and get through this. When he closes his lips, I love that, he is deemed intelligent. You might want to just do this a couple of times if you're at that table. It makes you look more intelligent, right? Proverbs ten nineteen. here's another one, where when there are many words... What's your word count for the day? When there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is prudent. This is uh, this is the verse that introverts like to quote to extroverts, right? Um, I knew a man who <laughs> I met with him regularly for some time, and he would say to me that his wife is going to ask me the same question every time we meet. And I said, What's the question? And he said, as soon as I get home, she's going to ask me, did anyone else get a chance to speak? It was this built-in accountability question. Sadly, almost every time we left, the answer was no. <laughs> because he, just, he could just go on and on and on and fill the room. I heard somebody once uh, use the metaphor or, or adage of he could talk the horns off a goat, you know. Just, just could go and go and go. If we want to To have life-giving words, we need to make them count. If we want to have life-giving words, we need to mix it and combine it with life-giving listening. Uh, So we're using our mouth and we're also using our ears. We're we're learning from others. We're listening to others. We're caring for others. We're not just airing our opinions every chance we get. I, I love this quote. It's a little edgy from Jackie Hill Perry. She writes this, being impressed by your own advice will most likely make you a terrible listener. You'll only listen up until the point that you have a great idea. Then you'll interrupt, I mean interject, so that you can share your idol, I mean your wisdom. (laughs) Life-giving speech involves a listening ear. Life-giving speech avoids gossip. Proverbs 26, 20, and 21, without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. As charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Talks about the devastating, many times Proverbs talks about the devastating impact of gossip. Gossip, by the way, um, doesn't simply ask the question, was it true? Gossip asks the question, did you say it to diminish another person? It could be true, it could be partially true, it could be untrue. If it's untrue, it's slander, but if it's true or partially true, it's, it's gossip. If you intended to diminish another person, if people get around you and leave suspicious of people who weren't in the room, there's a gossip issue. Scripture says you're like, you're like the ember that keeps the fire going. As long as you're still there, the fire keeps burning. And what's the Fire. It has the effect of separating people. Earlier in Proverbs chapter 6, God tells us the damage, not only that gossip does, but how He feels about gossip, and He lists it in the seven abominations, seven things that God abominates, God abhors these things. And the last one in the list is God hates one who sows discord among brothers, That's the damage gossip does. It separates brothers. Gossip breaks up families. I heard a story of a a man who, I think it's more of a parable. I'm not sure it it actually happened, but a story of a man who had betrayed his friend's confidence and aired some things that were entrusted to him in confidence. And years later, uh, that man discovered that his, his friend was dying and he went to his deathbed to ask for forgiveness. And the friend said, I'll forgive you. Here's what I would like for you to do, though. Would you take this down pillow and slice it open at the end and then bring it over to the window and dump out all the feathers? And he did it, and then he said, now go pick up all the feathers and put them back in the pillow. Gossip does deep. Damage and, and even when there's repentance, you can't get all the feathers back in the pillow. It's, it's already done its work. The damage is there. Gossip sows discord. It reaps a harvest of disunity. It separates, as the proverb says, the best of friends. It's an insidious evil. If we would speak life-giving words, we need not only to avoid gossip, but to Encouraged speaks of words that are a tree of life, words that feed many, words that bring healing. Recognize the power of words. Two, learn the art of restraint. And three, remember God's mercy toward you. Remember God's mercy toward you. I wonder if you've, um, if you've ever been to call you on the carpet, Baptist Church. If you have, then you know something. You know no one thrives in that environment. It's kind of what Spurgeon called a captious spirit, a caught you spirit. I saw that, and I'm going to point it out, and I'm going to tell other people what I saw. A a spirit that wants to catch people doing things that they perceive to be wrong or unimpressive. Here's what the Proverbs says. Proverbs 19.11. A person's insight gives him patience. And His virtue is to overlook an offense. Proverbs, in several places, praises the capacity to cover an offense, to absorb, to forbear, to show mercy, so that we're not constantly pointing fingers, constantly cornering people in the context of of the household of faith. I know of a church that um, years ago had a, had a practice in their small groups, and the practice was called observation party, and it's, it's a misnomer because it wasn't a party, it, because it wasn't fun at all. What you would do is you would observe all the wrong things that other people in your small group had done, and you'd take turns. Everybody would sit in a circle. Maybe there's 10 people in the circle. You start with this guy right here, and you say, okay, let's, well, let's just not, you know, slam them let's say some nice things about them so you'd say the nice things of course the person who's sitting in the seat is just waiting for the other shoe to drop and none of that even feels intentional or genuine and then here comes the storm of observations about the person and maybe an attitude, and I thought I perceived this and discerned that, and oh, I'm not sure that that was modest, and all, this, th- all these things, and, and, and the parenting thing. I'm not sure that you're actually parenting your kids in, in the way that God would have you. And it's just all this barrage of criticism, and you just sat there and wilted. And then it was, and then it was her turn, and we turned turn our guns toward her, and then the next and the next, and then when it was your turn, you realize, this is painful. <laughs> this is not healthy. This is not. This is not teaching me the way that God changes people. I just feel crushed by guilt and condemnation. And you, you start to ask the question. I think the movement and this church even started to ask the question: Is that how God treats us? Is that the way of the gospel? You, you ever realize in your own life? You ever realize an area of sin? maybe an area of blindness that you were totally unaware of and the Holy Spirit sweetly convicts you and draws you into grace and draws you out into light and into truth, and then you stop and realize, I've been a Christian for 15 years. How did I live under the smile of God, sensing his pleasure in the gospel when he saw this 15 years ago, and then you realize how patient is the Lord, how forbearing, how often does He not point again and again. You, he could wake me up every morning pointing at my sin, crushing me, just saying, oh, it's, it's there again. It's, uh, it's 9.03. It's there again. And then 906, ah, there it is. It could be an all-day, just the residue of his displeasure over my life. That could be the way it is with God, but it's not. He doesn't withhold his affection. And you realize while that blindness existed in your life, while that struggle continued in your life, you still woke up every morning. In the good news of the gospel and in the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, he didn't withhold his affection and say, we'll see what happens at the end of the day, and and that'll determine how I talk to you when you put your head on the pillow tonight. No, the gospel was there when you woke up, and it was there when you went to sleep. There there is a longing in the human soul to hear affectionate words, life-giving words from people who matter. And somebody else can't just substitute and say it for them. It has to come from that person. And there's a human element of that, but there's also this this ache for us to know God in that way, to run in His direction and to hear Him say what He alone can say that stabilizes our hearts and our lives. These words, Dad, tell me you love me. I heard a heartbreaking story a young man who his father was a Marine Corps officer, he raised his son to have kind of a tough exterior, sparing with his praise, no commendation. If the son did something right, there's no, no need to compliment him, but he just mostly pointed out the things that the son could have done better, and the son then enlisted in the Marine Corps, and he was dishonorably discharged because he got into a fight with his drill instructor, and his father cut him off said, that's it, you're not my son, we don't talk anymore, and he shut him out completely. And year over year, that continued to happen. There was silence and distance in that relationship. The son was in counseling for years, in and out of three engagements, just couldn't, couldn't put his life together. And suddenly, the phone rang one day, it was his mother... His mother said, your dad's had a heart attack, and, and so the son hops on the first plane that he can, and the whole way on the flight, and there's this sense of anticipation and, and hope that he could be reconciled to his father. He gets there only to arrive and discover that his father had slipped into a coma, never to come out. And they said you could hear down the hall this grown man saying, Dad, wake up. Wake up. Tell me you love me. Wake up. Christian friend, you, you need, we need to hear a word of blessing from God. We need to hear his, his affirmation, his declaration over us. We need to say, tell me you love me. We need that from Him. So week by week, what is worship? What is gathered worship? In a sense, gathered worship is this. Week by week, the Father assembles His family in His house to tell us He loves us. That's the gospel. We sit under that, we sing that, we remember that Sunday after Sunday. You know, you get a glimpse of what the Father's like when you watch Jesus go into the waters of baptism. He hasn't done a thing. had not died to save the world. Hadn't worked a miracle, hadn't taught the masses, hadn't gone walked toward leper colonies, hadn't done he made some tables. That's, that's all he did. He made tables and he got wet. He walked into water and the heavens open. And what does his father say? He's mine. Love him. I'm pleased with him. I'm so pleased with you. And everybody could hear it. So pleased with you. That's that's our father. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's the father you got. He's like that. You sit under his smile in the gospel before the day begins. You rest under his smile in the gospel when the day is over. The the, the gospel, the good news that God lavished his kindness on us in Christ creates a kind of people. It creates a people of Kindness. We, we talked about that this year. We pursue kindness. We pursue it. We don't hope it happens. We pursue kindness. We welcome graciously as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. We don't conjure up kindness. We don't fake kindness. We don't have to fake it. If you and I are convinced that God loves us in Jesus forever, it will change, it'll change our words over time. It won't just change our words, it'll change our tone of voice, even in correction. I love that the Apostle Paul doesn't just talk about correction, speaking the truth in love and not enumerate what sound, what tone that should have. Here's what he says, 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant, you want to be a servant of the Lord? I do. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. Able to teach and patient, and notice how that patience expresses itself, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Every word of that pays its weight. Instructing his opponents with gentleness. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So, if we want new words, what do we need? We need new hearts. If we want new words, we need new hearts. Here's the question Do we have hearts that have been made tender by the gospel? Has your heart been tenderized by the gospel? Are you a hard Christian, a mean spirited, fault finding Christian? That's a gospel issue. You don't you don't get it. The gospel softens us. Proverbs 12:18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 10:11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, just pouring life. The mouth of the righteous is pouring life over people. <laughs> wow. You know, lady wisdom, we talked about this I think in the first week when we were framing up the whole book. You've got a a father giving 10 speeches to his son, and you've got Lady Wisdom, four poems about Lady Wisdom, and she's going to walk, she sort of strides through the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And she's inviting all the simple, come and dine with me, come and receive wisdom and instruction to live skillfully as worshipers of God in the world. And she's just inviting people in all directions. All you simple, come with me. You come, you keep reading the book of Proverbs, and you get to the very last chapter. Lady wisdom is not a metaphor anymore. She's an actual woman. And she's glorious. She is the consummate picture of wisdom. You want to see where the path of wisdom? leads her. She's a picture of where wisdom goes, the kind of life that wisdom builds. You look at this woman standing there with strength and dignity as her clothing and diligence and love and a heart for the vulnerable. But, but here's the thing. This is in your notes. The final description of Lady Wisdom invites us to hear the beauty of her words. We don't see the beauty of her words garments her clothing on our way out it's not anything we see on our way out of that chapter we overhear the woman speaking and what does she say proverbs 31:26 she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue are your words marked by kindness gospel kindness the The late Reverend Dr. Evie Hills, gifted preacher, died, I think, in 2003. He was the pastor of the same church for 42 years, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. He lost his wife, Jane Edna. He called her babe. He lost his wife, uh, Jane Edna, to cancer in 1987, and he preached her funeral sermon. And he told a story nobody knew about. He said, as a... he talked about how his wife sought to be an encouragement to him, a constant source of encouragement. Even when it was almost impossible to find things to encourage, he still did it. And, uh, and he said, as a struggling young preacher, when we were first married, he said, I had trouble earning a living for us. And he said, I came home one night and I found that the house was dark. And he walked inside and he saw that, that Jane had prepared a candlelight dinner for the two of them. And he loved it, and he went to the bathroom to wash his hands and the light switch wouldn't work. And he thought, okay, I guess it's just that light switch, he felt his way to the, the bedroom and he t- tried to turn on the light there and it didn't work either. And so as a young pastor, he, he kind of walks back into the dining room and he asked Jane why the electricity was off and she began to cry. And she said, you work so hard and we're trying, she said, but I didn't have enough to pay the light bill, I didn't want you to know about it, so I thought we'd just eat by candlelight. And here at her funeral, you know what he said? He said, he said she was born into a very prestigious family, a wealthy family. Her, her dad was extremely well-known. Dr. Carruthers was very well-known. And he said, we were so young, and I so desired to provide for my wife. And he said, she could have broken me She could have decimated me, ruined me, but instead, she said, somehow or other, we'll get these lights back on, but tonight, let's eat by candlelight. God has an agenda for our words. It's captured so beautifully in this prophecy from Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 verse four, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. Listen, Brook Hills, if we offer our mouths to God, this will be a life giving church. There will be such healing in this place. We offer him our mouths and he will fill it. And we'll know how to speak in ways that, as Isaiah says, sustain the weary. We're going to lift burdens off of people. We're going to lift shame off of people. That's the beautiful thing that God wants to do, wants to make a reality in the church and through the church.